New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring levitation and bilocation. My guest is Professor Carlos Ayer, who is the T. Laurison Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. He is a historian of the late medieval and early modern period in Europe. He is author of many books, including War Against the Idols, From Madrid to Purgatory, A Very Brief History of Eternity, Reformations, Early Modern Europe from 1450 to 1700, his memoir of the Cuban Revolution, Waiting for Snow in Havana, won the U.S. National Book Award for Nonfiction. A second memoir, Learning to Die in Miami, focuses on the early years of his exile in the United States. His most recent book, which we'll be focusing on, is called They Flew, A History of the Impossible. Carlos lives in Connecticut, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Carlos. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm, I'm very, very pleased to be here. You've written an unusual book. You call it A History of the Impossible, and it focuses on uh, what I would call events of high strangeness, levitation and bilocation. And you begin by describing how you really were prompted to this exploration some 40 years ago when you were visiting the convent of St. Teresa in Avila in Italy. Yep, yep. Um, I, um, I did not plan for this to happen. I was simply traveling with a friend and we went to visit the convent. And during the, the guided tour, we were, um, it wasn't just he, him and me, it was a whole group of people. Uh, well, here's the kitchen where St. Teresa cooked. Uh, here's the refectory where they ate. Here's the staircase where she fell down and broke her arm. And then, oh, and here's the spot where St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross levitated together for the first time. And it was the fact that it had been turned into, a, that levitation was turned into a fact, not any different from the staircase or, or the frying pans in the kitchen. It just, I, I had a moment of, uh, let's call it uh, cognitive dissonance or cognitive awakening is probably a better uh, way to put it, that this was a, f a fact for so many people back in the 16th century and continued to be a fact in the 20th century when you would think that no one would speak of it that way. Set me thinking. 
And of course, I didn't work on this for 40 years uh, straight. I worked on it in dribs and drabs over the past 40 years, building up steam, working on other things in between. And um, I really wrote most of this book uh, during the worst of COVID. Uh, so um, it, it, I was in, in my plague bunker like everyone else. And my good fortune was that so many old texts are now digitized that I could access them from my house without going anywhere. And that, that was marvelous. Plus my, my employer, um, Yale university started mailing library books to the faculty, to their home address during COVID. So everything I needed uh, came either to my doorstep or was there for me to look at on my computer screen. You researched actual records from the Spanish Inquisition, for example. I guess they kept detailed files. Yeah, oh, they, they, they were um, manic, absolutely manic and obsessive compulsive about keeping files. I have to say that, you know, it's, it's a very modern institution in, in that respect. And uh, the Inquisition files I had access during a, an earlier trip back in the early 2000s. Um, so, yeah, I had been gathering stuff for a while. But the Inquisition is just amazing. Um, yeah, you not, not only find notes of what is being discussed, but let's say the prisoner receives the prisoner or sometimes they're not in prison, people being questioned. Letters that go back and forth are also included in the record. So it can sometimes be very complete. And uh, sometimes um, when people are, are being, uh, let's say, waterboarded, there's a parenthesis. We gave her more water. Oh, gosh. And then the interrogation continues and we gave her more water and so on. So there, it's amazing what you can reconstruct. Well, you are a specialist in, in what you call the early modern period of European history. In particular, we're focusing in on the 16th, 17th century, primarily a time when the, the Renaissance has, has taken place and modernism is, is beginning to uh, take root in European culture. And at the same time, medieval ideas haven't disappeared by any means. So it's very interesting when you look at, for example, an inquisition authorized by uh, the Vatican and the highest levels of the church to determine whether these accounts of uh, flying, monks and nuns, literally uh, flying. Is it true? And if it is true, how, how are they going to deal with it? Well, this is it, uh, because as you say, the, the transition to modernity is neither quick nor smooth, uh, nor, nor easy to comprehend. There are all sorts of different strands that, that coexist. If you view it as, as a rope of sorts with different strands in it, there are strands that go all the way back to the ancient world and uh, strands that, that begin to be inserted in 
slowly and gradually and not everybody's on the same wavelength uh so it's complicated and uh at this time period uh which is one of great religious divisions because the protestant reformation begins in 1517 right both protestants and catholics are keeping very close tabs on what people think and say within their own communities so there are protestant versions of the inquisition too in in some places not everywhere and not everywhere in europe that they was there an inquisition either it was it it was very strong in spain and in parts of italy but really uh no formal inquisition outside of those two regions in some instances, St. Teresa probably being the most prominent, uh, but certainly not the only one, St. Joseph of Copertino, uh, a, a, another one. The church examined these reports of flying. They weren't really known as levitation, I gather, until the spiritualist era. But, but they examined them very carefully, and I think it'd be fair to say with a skeptical eye. It's not as if the church was ready to uh, endorse these as religious miracles of saintly people. They, it took a lot of pushing, but in some instances, that's exactly what happened. Yes, and that's the modern dimension of this uh, phenomenon in the 16th and 17th century, because medieval levitators, uh, as a rule, did not uh, become suspect or undergo these interrogations the same way that the, the modern saints began to, to experience it. Uh, and a lot of it, uh, of course, has to do not just with uh, uh, new attitudes towards um, facts, towards history, but it also has to do with uh, the distrust that arises out of the religious divisions of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And in the case of the older strand, okay, so we have this modern strand of investigating people to make sure that they're the genuine article, right? With, with the background knowledge, yes, there are fakers. There are people who are faking this. An older strand takes us back to the middle ages when it was believed that levitation and bilocation could be caused by the devil right so that's uh, another reason that these individuals get investigated to make sure that this phenomenon is coming from the right source <laughs> rather than the wrong source uh, so again that makes it very difficult for anyone who is uh, considered saintly in the Catholic Church um, who can perform miracles or levitate or bilocate. But on the Protestant side, Protestants kept believing that the devil could make people levitate and bilocate, but God never did so. So on the Protestant side, anyone who goes up in the air is suspected of having a pact with the devil or being a witch. And of course, in this very same period, uh, we don't know how many thousands of, of people were put to death for witchcraft. The numbers have gone down in the past few decades. 
So we have more reliable quantitative research, but it's still in the thousands. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not as many tens of thousands as I learned when I was in high school, for instance. Uh, or even when I was uh, older in graduate school, the numbers were still astonishingly high. But um, from the 1970s on, uh, more research was carried out. And now we know that not as many, but it's still a horrific number uh, of people who were processed for witchcraft and executed uh, for witchcraft on both sides, Catholic and Protestant. And of course, that even happened here in the United States only a few centuries ago. That's right. Not not too far from where I'm sitting right now. <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, one one of the last uh, witchcraft trials here in Connecticut took place in uh, the 1690s. So uh, it's not that long ago either. Well, that's to me the perfect archetypal example of the uh, what is meant by a paradigm and a change in paradigms where we used to execute people for witchcraft. And today, the mainstream paradigm is that witchcraft doesn't really exist. Right. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> because actually, I'm teaching a course right now on um, history of the supernatural. And most of my students are very, very interested in witchcraft and the, and the history of it. And I think some of them are, are also, uh, you know, pretty sure that there are still witches. Um, and yeah, we, well, we have Wicca here in North America, uh, which is a, a, views itself as a continuation of an ancient tradition of, of witchcraft. Um, benevolent witchcraft, not malevolent witchcraft. Still, though, when it comes to witches flying on broomsticks, I, I, I would say e even parapsychologists such as myself have, have trouble with that idea. Right, right. Well, even at that time, let's say beginning in the late 15th century, but especially 16th and going into the 17th century, there were skeptics. Right. And, and uh, there was a, a Lutheran um, writer who was among the first to say, well, you know, these women that we're dragging in as witches who claim that they can fly are just, you know, very confused, lonely, uh, perhaps mentally ill women who uh, put ointments on their skin and hallucinate and think they're flying. So there were skeptics, but then there were also people who testified at witchcraft trials. Oh yeah, she's definitely a witch. You know, I saw her, I saw her up in the air. I saw her flying. And one of the funniest, uh, you know, you talk about paradigm shifts. One of the funniest moments in legal history in England is uh, from the late, 17th century. No, it's in the 18th century where a woman is up for trial for witchcraft and a eyewitness brought forth testimony. I've seen her up in the air. She's, she's a witch. And the judge's legal decision was there is no law against flying. <laughs> There's no law against flying. So, um, Yes, there have been skeptics for quite some time.
uh, and we don't, uh, yeah, we uh, flying witches come out as images for Halloween. But yeah, that's about it. Well, you point out uh, that uh, the spiritualists also took a big interest in flying, or they're the ones who coined the term levitation, which which is pretty much in, in modern use now. And uh, you point out that there are some very well-attested accounts of, of spiritualist mediums levitating. Right. Um, one of the most famous ones in the 19th century was uh, Daniel Douglas Hume, who was a Scotsman, but actually uh, came here to the United States. And one of his most famous levitations took place here in Connecticut, in South Manchester, Connecticut. But then he went back to Europe and uh, other famous levitations of his took place in London and other places in England. And um, oh, there, there were many who believed that these levitations were, were absolutely real. So um, it's hard to do research on levitation before the 19th century, precisely because the term didn't exist. So when you do a word search, you can't look for levitation. Uh, another term that was invented by spiritualists was telepathy. Mm-hmm. Another term that didn't exist till the, till the 19th century. The spiritualists, uh, well, they, they tried to take a, many of them, not all of them, but many took an interest in, in having a scientific approach to psychic phenomena, as, as, as you well know. Uh, and there were some very serious uh, individuals, serious in the sense that we, we regard them as um, luminaries. Um, Thomas Alva Edison, Arthur Conan Doyle, for just, just for starters, two people. Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife, in the White House, they had spiritualist seances. <laughs> so it's not just simple-minded people who were caught up in all this. And I uh, seem to recall that in, in one of those seances, uh, it said that Lincoln attended and a piano levitated. I never heard that, so I didn't run into it. I wish I had. <laughs> I wish I had. It would be in the book. But yeah. Uh, yeah, levitating furniture was a, 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 another uh, spiritualist uh, phenomenon. Many, many reports of table levitations witnessed by Nobel laureate scientists like Pierre Curie, for example. That's right. Yeah, he and his wife, Marie Curie, were also very much into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, a levitating piano is very impressive. <laughs> It, it certainly is, and I even seem to recall somebody telling me that Lincoln may have been sitting on top of the piano when it levitated. I've seen an illustration from the 19th century of several men sitting on the piano, and the piano is levitating with the men on top of it. So, yeah, um, the you know, I, I think that... Um, n- once the term came into existence, levitation, uh, it, it no longer applied necessarily to 
religion, whereas before it had in some way. Uh, the spiritualists kind of took the religion dimension out of it. And it was, a, well, it's just a phenomenon uh, that involved another dimension, not necessarily a god or a devil. Yes, it was the action of spirits. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're still in another realm, another dimension, crossing over into this dimension. But there's no longer any attempt to attribute it to um, a divine source or an angelic source, because the devil is a fallen angel. Well, if this was the big concern, of course, in the 16th century. Yes, because um, there's, there's this continual fear that uh, anyone who... whose bodies uh, levitate or whose body can be in two places at the same time is definitely either uh, in league with God or the devil. So actually, when you think about it, in the 16th and 17th century, there was kind of a moral dimension to these phenomena because for Catholics, really holy people, People who were had given their will over to God completely could levitate. But so could people with really bad wills who had given themselves over to the devil. And with Protestants, it was only people who had given themselves over to the devil. So uh, you were there was no gray area. There was no middle ground. You were either good or bad. Um, which is why when uh, St. Teresa started to levitate, when she was in her 40s, and she was the superior of a, you know, a convent full of nuns, she ordered the, her, them, next time you see me going up, hold me down. Try to hold me down. And if I go up, please pull me down. I want these things to stop. And we have these very, very funny accounts. They are hilarious if you look at them from a certain perspective of, you know, six or seven nuns trying to pull down their superior. Uh, and we have the same accounts, same kind of accounts from Puritans in Boston trying to pull down a, a demonically possessed teenage girl and being unable to do so. But the reason Teresa asked her nuns to hold her down and uh, also kept praying to God, please stop doing this to me, is that she didn't want to attract attention as a levitator because she knew that was nothing but trouble. Um, and she claims that her levitations stopped, that God, God granted her wishes heard her prayers, and the levitation stopped. But as it turns out, in a letter she wrote later in life, she was admitting to someone, you know, my levitations have returned. Mm. But by then she had been cleared almost completely by the Inquisition. They were very concerned, I think, from your book, that she wasn't 
involved in an egotistical way with these, that she wasn't trying to present herself as a miracle worker of any kind, or even a saintly person. That's right. Uh, humility was the, the highest of all virtues for medieval sainthood, right? And it continued to be the, the primary virtue in, in the early modern period. And still to this day, actually, uh, beginning since the 18th century, in the process of canonizing someone as a saint, the Catholic Church values heroic virtue more than healing miracles or levitation or bilocation or any of these other physical phenomena of, of mystical ecstasy. And among those virtues, humility is still top of the list. You use the term mystical ecstasy, and I think it's crucial, particularly in the case of St. Teresa, because it's not just that she levitated, it's that the levitations were accompanied by uh, a series of altered states of consciousness that could be referred to as different forms of ecstasy. Yes. And as a matter of fact, I think it's probably it, not in every case, but in most cases, it's it's more correct to say that the levitations are a byproduct of a mystical ecstasy. And in her case, and in many others, including the greatest levitator of all, Joseph of Cupertino, this is how things happened, and how it was witnessed by others who were in the room when it happened. The, the, the person, let's say Teresa, let's stick with her. Teresa goes into a cataleptic seizure, which means her body freezes in whatever position she was in. Standing, kneeling, sitting, whatever. The body just stiffens up and, all sense, and, and the body loses all sensation. And in many cases... Uh, those around them uh, come and test pricking the person with needles, putting candles up to their eyes to see if they blink and there's no response. They're just totally frozen. And then comes the levitation. Right? And in, in, in some cases, again, you can laugh if you read it from a certain perspective, but it it's it's nothing to laugh at if you're the person to whom it's happening because when the body's levitating, sometimes those who are witnessing it start playing with the body, like blowing on it because it's, it's kind of nearly weightless. So we have descriptions of these levitating saints being blown on and, and, and the body drifting to the other end of the room. Uh, so if they're not trying to pull you down, they're blowing on you and you're, you're experiencing what, and it's a medical term, a cataleptic seizure during which you lose all sensation and you're having a mystical experience that is uh, a very close encounter with God, with the divinity. So, um, 
in the case of some of these levitators, it's, it's very interesting. It's not just their bodies that stiffen up. Their clothing stiffens up too. And the wrinkles don't move. And even if the levitator is moving from, let's say, place A to place B, there's no flowing of the garments. It's like the levitator is encased in a kind of dimensional bubble, which um, I got an email from a scientist in Wales who, uh, who has read my book. He was very excited by this fact. He says, I love this fact because here's my theory about levitation. He said that levitation is outside of time space. Right. So, yes, gravitation doesn't apply uh, to this person or their, what they're wearing because they are literally outside of time space. Mm-hmm. And for them, while they're levitating, time does not pass. So I immediately thought of the movie Interstellar. I don't know if, if you've seen it. I'm aware of the movie. Yeah, well, in the movie, you know, they they put Einstein's theory of, you know, relativity to work in the storyline. And these people who are on another planet are not aging, but like every few minutes is like a year on Earth. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's what this scientist said is happening to these levitators. Which would explain why the clothing wouldn't move at all. It's as if they're... They're frozen in a moment of time. That's right. And many of them, when they come back from their ecstasy, which sometimes last hours, they pick up exactly where they left off. Especially Joseph of Cupertino, if he was saying mass, sometimes he levitated for hours. And as soon as he came back down, literally down, <laughs> he would pick up on in the mass reading, whatever it was he was reading with the next word, which um, is also true of other levitators I I, I read about. Mm -hmm. They seem to have no sense that time has elapsed. Well, now, Joseph is a very interesting case. I've done a separate interview just on that case with Michael Grosso, who's written a book about him. He, he he pointed out that the church was very reluctant to grant sainthood to this man because his austerities were so severe that that he smelled awful. Well, I didn't read any descriptions of his, his smell by anyone. But yeah, um, many of these saints uh, performed um, great feats of self-denial, we might call self-abuse, right? There's no getting around that. But um, the case of Joseph, one reason that it took, um, it didn't take all that long, relatively speaking, for him to be canonized. But there was resistance. There was drag on the case because he was too much. He was just simply too much. Uh, And as I'm sure uh, Michael Grosso uh, pointed out to you, because he does in his book, um, they kept, the church authorities kept sending him to ever more remote locations. And the last 10 years of his life, he ended up living basically like a prisoner 
he could only come out once a week from his cell in his monastery, only once a week. The rest of the time he had to be by himself because he was too much of a distraction for everybody else. Crowds uh, of people would come to see him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why they sent him finally. His la last place they sent him to was so remote that it was very hard for crowds to come. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. In one place, the crowds actually made holes in the roof and holes in the walls of the monastery chapel just so they could see him. And a little tent city was created outside the monastery. Uh, and this is why I take it seriously. Because these things don't happen. Uh, these You don't get these testimonies if there isn't something going on. Uh, and um, I know that Michael Grosso is, is a firm believer in the reality of Joseph's levitations. Uh, and also, um, he he speaks, he spends time in his book talking about this uh, kind of uh, trans-dimensional bubble that encases uh, Joseph and other levitators. Mm -hmm. um, for me as a historian, it's, it's the abundance of testimonies and testimonies of levitations that would have been impossible to fake because there were plenty of fakers. And we have illusionists who, you know, Las Vegas and other places, they, they're on stage and they're levitating, right? They've got wires and ropes and pulleys and stuff. For, for anyone to say, I saw this, not anyone, but dozens of people to say, yes, this, this man uh, just suddenly went up into a tree and, and stayed up there. And then he finally came out of his ecstasy and we had to get a ladder to bring him down that unless everybody's lying, right? Unless everyone is lying, that is something that most probably did happen. Because I think it's also, uh, uh, you kind of have to assume a lot to say everyone is lying. Hundreds of people are lying, or in some cases, thousands of people are lying. Uh, that also takes a leap of faith to believe that everyone could lie so successfully. Well, in addition to flying or, or levitation, there are several related phenomena you write about bilocation. And also, I would use the term uh, teleportation. I think you have a different term for it in in your book. But there was a famous recent case uh, with the psychic Uri Geller, who was said to have teleported from Manhattan into the home of Andrea Puharich in Ossining, New York, around 30 miles away. I didn't know about this. I read an article very recently about Uri Geller, who uh, had moved back to Israel. Yes. And he is, he's one who has, um, you know, baffled audiences as a, you know, public performances of his um, 
ability to bend spoons and forks and stuff on Johnny Carson. <laughs> That's sure. Many people think he, he's an obvious fake. I, uh, I was involved actually, Carlos, in, in producing his first major public appearance in the United States back, back in the 1970s at Zellerbach Auditorium in Berkeley on, on the campus. So I've been following his career closely and the example of the teleportation was not a stage trick. It happened spontaneously and was attested to by other individuals whom I know and, and trust. Again, I get asked all the time, now, now that this book is out, I get asked all the time, why is it that we don't have these events happening in our day and age, right? I, and I, my response is, well, we probably don't hear about them. You know, they, they remain um, within a, a, a close circle of people, but they don't make it to the evening news, right? And um, a case in point of, you know, how the news doesn't always report what is happening. I, I just, after I finished writing the book, I found out about an event that took place in the 1970s in Cairo, Egypt, of all places. For two years, every day, thousands and thousands of people saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary on the roof of a church in a suburb of Cairo. Zaytun, if I recall. Yes, yeah, Zaytun. Uh -huh. I, I was alive in the 70s. <laughs> I didn't read a word or hear a word about this, and it went on for two years. Yeah. Over a million people, supposedly total. We've covered that on the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. We've, I think, have had discussions of Uri Geller's teleportation, and I have an interview with uh, Stuart Alexander, a physical medium uh, in uh, north of, uh, of England, who has has re reported levitating during his seances. So, uh, to my knowledge, these things still do occur, but they they are rare. They're certainly not as common as as apparently was the case in the 16th and 17th century, where you you report numerous examples. Yeah. Well, actually, I I say this all the time, and I don't mean to, I don't mean it in a joking fashion. The 16th and 17th century were the peak period for flying humans, <laughs> in, at least Western history, right? Yeah. Um, because you've got saints levitating uh, in the Catholic world, and you've got witches levitating and flying um, everywhere, just about. Um, doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Protestant territory. Um, and then it starts to diminish. I mean, the numbers diminish. And here at the present time, things are different. And I don't know, uh, this is someone else I found out about towards the end of my research. And she's only mentioned briefly in my book. There's this French nun, uh, Yvonne Aimé de Malestroit, born 1901, died in 1951 hundreds of bilocations, well-documented, including bilocations to prisoners during the Nazi occupation of France. 
And she ended up getting uh, five of the highest medals any French person can get. And two of those medals were pinned on her by Charles de Gaulle. Because in addition to the bilocations, she rescued resistance fighters and downed allied pilots, dressed them as nuns <laughs> to get them out of France. So there's these two sides to her story, right? There's the supernatural side, and then there's the very earthly side. Within my lifetime, because I was born in 1950. <laughs> so it's, it's plausible if my parents had taken me to France as a baby, I could have been in the same room with this woman. Or maybe she could have bilocated to Havana where I grew up. <laughs> well, you point out in your book that bilocation is m more difficult to establish than flying or levitation because you need witnesses at both ends. You don't have uh, it's it's not enough to trust the testimony of one person. That's right. So, you know, in courtroom uh, lingo, it's a he said, you, he said, she said kind of situation, you know. A uh, person in place A claims they, this person never left. person in place B says, oh, all of a sudden this person showed up. And it takes time for the coordination to convince people. However, I did find one case. Uh, I don't mention it in the book, uh, but there's one case of somebody who supposedly bilocated uh, with, with only within like two or three block distance. Mm -hmm. And people ran back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and actually saw them in place A and place B, which is unique. But I, I couldn't trust the testimony, so I didn't include it in the book. Well, you do write about a, a case of a woman who apparently bilocated thousands of miles away from Europe into North America or Central America and, and was preaching to the uh, natives. Yes, that's uh, uh, Sor Maria de Agreda, who incidentally has not been canonized. Uh, and, you know, she lived the uh, same time as Joseph of Cupertino in the 17th century. While in ecstasy in her convent in Spain and while levitating in ecstasy, she also appeared in present day Texas and New Mexico reportedly over 500 times to try to Christianize the, the natives in that area. And in the, well, you're in Albuquerque, right? I am. Well, the lady in blue is a, a, a huge a folklore legend in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And I think the area to where she went to, to, mission, to do mission work with the Humano people is now in West Texas uh, rather than New Mexico. But I don't know. I don't know the geography there that well. But a student of mine happened to be traveling through San Angelo, Texas last year and sent me this remarkable photo. They've erected a very large statue of Maria de Agreda, the lady in blue, in San Angelo, Texas. Go figure. Uh, you know, it took 400 some years, but <laughs> she got a statue.
With the idea being that these uh, Native Americans were being converted to Christianity by what one might think of as an apparition of a, a nun in Europe somewhere. Right. Um, and she didn't know when she was asked by the Inquisition how this happened. She said, I don't know. I just, I knew, I know I was there. So they asked her very common sense questions like, um, could you feel the rain if it was raining? Could you feel the temperature? And, and she would say, yes, I did. But I, I, I'm telling you, she would say, I don't know how this happens. All I know is that I go there. So then the other common sense question, well, how did you speak to these people? You don't know their language. And they don't know our language. She said, I don't know. All I know is we talked to each other. <laughs> so, um, and supposedly, uh, I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I've seen photographs. Back in her convent in Spain, they have pieces of cloth that she embroidered uh, depicting the animals and the plants that she saw in New Mexico. Um, and I'm no expert on flora and fauna of New Mexico, so I don't know. <laughs> They're very interesting looking, yeah. And, and I gather there are still communities of people pushing for her to be canonized as a saint. Definitely, definitely. Because she also, um, as uh, I mentioned earlier to you before, before we started recording, she wrote, uh, she took notes when the Virgin Mary appeared to her. The Virgin Mary dictated her life to Sor Maria. And she wrote it all down. And, you know, People might think my book is long, but her life of the Virgin Mary is a million words long. <laughs> so that's another reason that her canonization process has, has gotten mired down, because that's a huge claim to make. Uh, and that created problems for her and for her canonization. Well, I would think that the uh, uh, people who are in charge of preserving the Catholic doctrine and its present form are very suspicious of uh, anything that might involve changes to the doctrine. That's right, because there are, um, well, I'll, I'll back up uh, one step. The Catholic Church is so old and has had to deal with so many different phenomena that uh, there's actually a, a, this is a teaching of the Catholic Church. There's such a thing as a private revelation, which Catholics are not obligated to believe. The, it, it has question marks hanging over it. Well, it's possible, but you don't have to believe it. That's how her book is, is viewed. But yeah, they have to be careful because there are things in her book that don't appear in the Bible. Right? And there are things that don't appear in any other early Christian documents. So if you view it from the perspective of authorship, only that, she is placing herself right alongside the authors of the Gospels of the New Testament. And that's, that's a huge claim. That's a very huge claim. 
Let's talk for a moment about your situation as a professor of history at one of America's great universities. Uh, I have to assume that you know, the modernist culture, meaning materialism, dominates uh, most history departments and that for you to even write about this subject as, as if there might be something to it places you in a, uh, an awkward position. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong, but um, there are other like-minded individuals in my profession, historians, who who are on the same. Uh, it's not a wavelength. We just agree, mm -hmm. right? That although many of these phenomena cannot be proven to have taken place, especially you know in the distant past. One should not discount the possibility that such things happened, uh, and and primarily because of the testimonies, should not be discounted. That's the most simple and and, and sort of functionalist approach to these miracles. Is yeah, these people believed it, but there are some of us who go beyond that and say more than. Okay, fine. People thought it was a fact. But maybe there's more. Maybe it is a fact. Right? Maybe this, this, this is all true. And there are a number of individuals, scholars, well-respected scholars, too. Um, Dale Allison, uh, who's a New Testament scholar at Princeton Theological Seminary. He, he has published a book recently uh, that is mostly uh, accounts, first-person accounts of individuals in the 20th and 21st century who have had spiritual, otherworldly experiences. He's brave enough to do that, including some of his own experiences. But uh, there is a pushback now against what many of the like-minded people I know call dogmatic materialism, you know, which is the, the assumption that all there is is the material world, there's nothing else, and we can't say anything about anything that is not part of the material world in the sense that it follows the, the, the laws of nature as we understand them now. But for heaven's sakes, you know, I can say that I have a son who levitated for two years because he spent two years in Japan and rode the uh, electromagnetic levitating train frequently. That's a fact, and it's an interesting argument, but then it, it suggests that there must be a material cause, you know, electromagnetism or something to uh, explain these levitations. Right. And uh, actually, you're right. You're absolutely right. What I can add to that is that just the fact that there is uh, some kind of material um, law of nature involved, that's not to say that there isn't another dimension. Because what many scholars, not so much historians, but scholars of, of religion and, and non-scholars too, argue 
including scientists, that there are other dimensions. And there are serious astrophysicists, as you well know, who, you know, say that we live in a multiverse and that there are all these other dimensions that sometimes uh, interact with each other. And I was very, very happy to see, I think it was last year or the year before, a team of scientists at Caltech and Cambridge in England, two separate teams, did an experiment to see if we live in a simulation. <laughs> and their finding was, no, we don't live in a simulation, right? But they're taking the possibility seriously. Maybe we're all like the, the Matrix, the film The Matrix, right? Yeah, I wasn't aware that even of the possibility of testing that hypothesis. Well, I, I don't know what they did yeah. to prove or disprove, but they, they, they announced their findings. It's heartening what you're suggesting, that the uh, pushback against hardcore materialism is finding some inroads in academia. It is, and I have been amazed, honestly. Now, maybe the other shoe has not dropped yet, <laughs> because my book has only been out for, for a couple of months, and the other shoe will drop inevitably. Uh, I'll get the pushback. I'll, I'll get ridiculed for sure. Uh, but um, all I'm saying is, okay, modern science is based on skepticism about anything otherworldly. And we're supposed to, I mean, the, the what was it, Francis Bacon, one of the early scientists Western history. If you begin with certainties, he said, you will end with the doubts. But if you begin with doubts, you will end with certainty. And that was his description of the scientific process. What I'm, all I'm saying is, I, I mean, I, I'm actually saying I can't prove these things happen. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that they did happen exactly as described. All I'm saying is, be skeptical about dogmatic materialism because there are many things we still don't understand many many things we don't understand and if you go to the subatomic level and the um, cosmic level the deeper you go in either direction the less we know and the more puzzling right that reality seems to everyone to the scientists, they, you know, explain that to me. Explain what happens when you go in a black hole. We don't know. Yeah. Well, I would think as a historian, you're particularly aware that every age has its biases. And we can look back historically and laugh at the foolishness of uh, the way people acted and thought in, in different periods. And, and the funny thing is we imagine that we're beyond all that ourselves. That's right. And that, that is, that's precisely a part of my argument about being skeptical about dogmatic materialism is that we're all time and place we're bound culture bound we're culture bound and uh, all of us live with what um, social scientist Ernst Trelch called social facts 
Now, social fact is, is something that's believed to be a fact by your own culture, and it governs your behavior because it's an assumption that can't be challenged. So an example of a social fact that uh, is still problematic to us here in the United States, social fact, all men are created equal, <laughs> right? Hmm. Try to question that. And any way you question it, you get into trouble. <laughs> yeah. But in many other societies, you know, in gosh, it's, it's, I think it's the majority of the world right now. That social fact does not exist. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, or the, the principles of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Those are supposed to be social facts but they're not <laughs> in most of the world. Well, you pointed out earlier using the metaphor of the rope and all of the different threads in the rope. At any historical period, there are many different threads of, of different lengths so that ancient ideas are still present today and medieval ideas are present and modern ideas are, are present. and. It's very hard to think of an era, a cultural epoch, such as the present epoch, as a single thing. That's right. It's always mixed. And even within a single individual, you've got all kinds of mixtures. And many of us, um, and I speak us saying we, I mean anyone who's alive on earth today at this time, everyone can have beliefs that they're not 100% certain about and customs that they feel they're, they're being strangled by these customs, but they can't break free from them because they're from long ago. And ideas that um, cause people to erupt into violence against each other because of the disagreement, one being the old idea and the other being the new idea. Um, so we all live with great degree of uncertainty about, you know, ultimate truths. Well, I'd like to go back to the story that we began our interview with, the double levitation of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa together, and the profound impact it had on you just learning about that story while you were in the room where it uh, is said to have happened. The intriguing thing uh, about it, of course, is that it happened to two people simultaneously who were were both, uh, one has to assume, that they, they brought each other into a state of ecstasy with their conversation. Yes, and it was the conversation that did it. That's, that's the way the story has been told since it was first reported. They met. Uh, right there at that spot on a feast, Trinity, Trinity Sunday. It's once a year in the Catholic Church, Trinity Sunday, it's early summer. And they were discussing the Trinity. And all of a sudden, boom, 
They're up in the air. And um, according to the reports, John of the Cross was sitting on a chair. And again, that freezing, the chair went up with him. He was suspended in midair, sitting on a chair. He was not holding it. He was just sitting on it. So um, this happened sometime between 1572 and 1574. We can, that's the closest we can come to dating the event. Uh, but they had this Im impact on each other. There are very few. I, I have found very, very few instances of two people bilocating at the same time or two people levitating at the same time. Well, it suggests the possibility that through conversation, people can bring each other into these exalted states of consciousness where miraculous things of this sort can happen. It certainly does suggest that, I think. Um, and um, I have never seen anyone levitate. <laughs> I have never seen anyone bilocate either. Um, but I can see the possibility of two people simultaneously going into kind of mystical ecstasy that involves levitation. Um, I can't prove that the incident related to me back in 1983 happened. <laughs> but I can say this, it happened to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it had an effect on me. You're today the author of uh, this book as a result of having heard that story 40 years ago. That's right. Um, and, and, and being there on the spot. That was very important to me. That was part of my cognitive uh, enlightenment, that I was in that spot, in that room, which is not very large. Well, I gather they were in separate rooms, really. They had a little grid uh, and a hole in the wall that they could communicate through. Yeah, because the nuns were not supposed to go into the outside world. So it's like a, I, the way I've described it in the past few weeks, um, to audiences, it's like a prison visit. The nuns are basically, in, they have imprisoned themselves and their visitors have to see them through a little opening, a window with bars on it, right? That's that's the, the really cruel part of it is that there's a bar, there are bars separating the nuns from the outside world. And the place is still there and looks pretty much the same. Well, I, I would imagine if I were St. John of the Cross or, or St. Teresa in that moment, it, it would have felt like uh, there was no separation between the two of them. Well, that's the thing, yeah. That, that's the important thing. And, 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 and you know, I, I said, I used the word cruel before. There's cruelty involved in that grill, that metal grill. But those women there at that time, had all chosen this. They wanted to live like that. Because um, the world was too scary a place, too frightening a place. And I gather that's where we get the idea of penitence and the penitentiary is uh, from the, these monastic traditions. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, actually, I know someone, former student of mine, who is uh, now writing a book on on the history of solitary confinement, and he traces it to the monastic tradition. I uh, had the same thought in my days as a graduate student of criminology. Uh, as a matter of fact, that w was a project I contemplated undertaking myself, a, a study of solitary confinement. Well, um, Joseph of Cupertino, last yeah. 10 years of his life, were solitary confinement. Um, except for one day a week. During math, I think it, was, it wasn't the entire day. He didn't have all Sunday. He just could go uh, to mass with his brethren. That was it. And, and in that situation, I gather uh, that the rules of monasticism are you have to obey your superiors, which is part of, uh, of uh, the humility that, that's required. So I assume he gladly went along with these restrictions. Oh, yeah. Um, the accounts are that uh, he not only went along with these restrictions, but that as he kept being moved from place to place, every time he was moved was a total surprise. Someone just showed up and said, okay, time to go. And in one case, uh, he left his eyeglasses and his shoes behind because they moved him out so quickly. He never cared to retrieve his glasses <laughs> or his shoes. Well, it's an amazing story, St. Teresa and St. Joseph, and I think in your book you list dozens of other saints who have been reported to levitate or fly. Yep, I do. And I also have a whole section of the book on frauds who, who, who were unmasked, because I think that's a very important part of the story that makes the, the ones that were deemed to be genuine levitators. It makes their, their case more believable because the frauds who were discovered show that there was a process in place for ferreting out the fakers. <laughs> I'm under that impression that the high church officials who had to end up approving the eventual canonization of these individuals were very reluctant to allow themselves to be put into a position of endorsing a fraud. That's right. And that was a constant concern. And it is during this time period that the Catholic Church creates the office of the so-called devil's advocate. Uh, the official in the canonization process whose job it is to raise doubts, to cast doubts, to investigate, to bring in as many skeptics as possible. Um, to make sure that there's no, no fakery going on. I know in, in Michael Grosso's book about the uh, case of St. Joseph of Cupertino, he, he talks about the rules that had been set out for investigation. And by the, uh, I guess there was a cardinal in charge of, of it all. And, and he says, even by today's modern standards in parapsychology and psychical research, their investigation procedures were very thorough and competent. They were. 
Um, and you know, the, the, the frauds who are uncovered are the, the proof, you know, they, they're like the, um, in a scientific experiment, you've got a control, right? They're the control. They let you see that this process was actually very, very, um, carefully thought out and usually very conscientiously carried out. So, um, some people made it through. There are many who didn't. Um, and there are some who, you know, we have reports about, but have never been investigated. Um, I ran into, a, there's a, at least a half a dozen Mexican nuns who also claim to bilocate the fi faraway places, and they have not received any attention. Um, uh, so we don't know if they're, you know, would have ever been deemed genuine or not. Now it's too late because too much time has elapsed. Well, I think the lesson is uh, for people, if they hear of contemporary reports, to at least be open-minded that they might be worthy of serious investigation. Well, yeah, I would say so. Um, I agree. Um, and I'm always ready to be surprised. Well, Carlos Ayer, it's been a joy to have this conversation with you. I have to commend you on a, a wonderful, very thoroughly written book, and I highly recommend it to our viewers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And for those, for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.